A warm welcome to another episode of Crown and Crozer. I'm your host, Patrick Brown. Chances are you're familiar with popular feminist slogans and ideology, but it may come as a surprise to you, and for that matter, to modern day feminists themselves, to learn that the origins of the women's movement is steeped in a rich, ennobling vision of Christian virtue as the lifeblood of both our private lives as individuals and our public lives in common. In this dialogue, we revisit the seminal work of 18th century British philosopher Mary Wollstonecraft, who is widely regarded as one of the principal intellectual architects of the women's movement in the West. Our guide and our guest for this exploration is Erica Bakioki. Erica is a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center and senior fellow at the Abigail Adams Institute, where she founded and directs the Wollstonecraft Project. She's the author of a fascinating recent book, The Rights of Women Reclaiming the Lost Vision, which calls for a rediscovery of Wollstonecraft's understanding that both men and women are entitled to political freedom and equality on account of their shared capacity for reason, and that freedom and equality are not ends in themselves, but are means for pursuing the higher goods of virtue, wisdom, excellence, and service to God, family, and community. One quick word before we begin, don't forget to subscribe, leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts, or tell a friend or two about us. We've had an awesome response to the launch of our second season, and we'd really love to keep up the momentum. Thanks again for tuning in to the podcast on church, state, and faithful citizenship. There are two swords, and the question is which sword is superior, the spiritual sword or the temporal sword? And without God, democracy will not and cannot long endure. I die His Majesty's good servant at God's first. Today on Crown and Crozier, we're joined by Erica Bakioki. Erica, thanks so much for being with us here today. It's wonderful to be with you. So on this podcast, we talk a lot about human flourishing and how the church and the state can cooperate in promoting it. In your recently published book, The Rights of Women Reclaiming a Lost Vision, you look at the vision of human flourishing articulated by the 18th century British philosopher Mary Wollstonecraft, and you argue that it's time for us to recover her vision and put it into practice. So to kick off our conversation, could you tell us what inspired you to write this book and why you think the time is ripe for revisiting Wollstonecraft's vision? Yeah, so I had done um, a lot of prior work in constitutional law, especially looking at equality arguments for abortion rights and digging pretty deeply into Ruth Bader Ginsburg's thinking about those kinds of things. She's kind of the most prominent advocate for that, for these arguments for equality rights for, for abortion. And as someone who had studied a lot of political theory, I really wanted to kind of get behind those kinds of rights claims because it just was so befuddling to me that we could arrive at a point in our history where, you know, we could claim that a woman had a constitutional right to end the life of her own child. You know, in addition, we have this kind of general proliferation of rights in our culture, in our laws. And so I, I kind of wanted to get behind all that and try to understand the rights theories um, that guided that kind of that kind of thought, that kind of, for me, sort of a perversion. And um, the way I started and the way I kind of conceived of the book at first was looking at Ginsburg's kind of ideas and where they might have come from 
in kind of contradistinction to my intellectual hero, Marianne Glendon, who, when I read, you know, her Rights Talk, um, which is a, a book from the 1990s, she's a Harvard Law professor, now retired, was, I'm not sure if how much your listeners know her, but had led the Vatican delegation to the Beijing Conference on Women. And uh, she had kind of rescued me from my own <laughs> pro-choice feminism as a college student who was studying women's studies. And, and so Rights Talk was really, really important in kind of my own intellectual development. So I wanted to put these two, kind of this libertarian Ginsburg in conversation with this kind of communitarian or dignitarian Glendon. But then it really occurred to me that no one who knew me would be surprised that I would think Glendon came out on the right end of that. <laughs> um, and, and they probably wouldn't really care what I thought about that. Um, and so I had to dig deeper. So I went back and read Mary Wollstonecraft for the first time since being that women's studies student as kind of a, a liberal feminist in the 1990s. And I was kind of shocked by what I read because I didn't remember her having sort of the views that she had. I don't know if I'd only read excerpts of her and, you know, sort of her views on education. Um, but she had this thoroughgoing, really pre-modern understanding of the human person that I don't think had been really captured a lot in, you know, as much in secondary literature, although that's been growing. Um, and so I really wanted to kind of start with her and lay out her vision which I really thought, you know, and what I argue in the book, that really comes to completion with uh, Marianne Glendon's thought, but had been derailed, especially in the 1970s by Ruth Bader Ginsburg, because of her more kind of Lockean or Millian views. So I wanted to sort of show this intellectual history, these two strains of women's rights, and that the better one was the Wollstonecraftian strain. So l let's get right into Wollstonecraft's vision. She publishes The Vindication of the Rights of Woman in 1792. In a nutshell, what were her key arguments? It's interesting because if you go and read it, it's not particularly systematic. She's not like laying out a theory, you know, like Hobbes or Mill or something like that. She's really responding to others. So she has these kind of different interlocutors. And really the main one is Rousseau and his discussion of women's education and his famous Emile. And so what he's kind of arguing is that, you know, men are strong and active, women are passive, women are really made for man's delight, and that women's own, only, the kind of only virtue she needs is chastity. And so what Wollstonecraft is basically saying is that, look, women are rational creatures, and the fact that they have rational souls and they are, you know, uh, responsible to God leads us through kind of just the logic of virtue and um, pursuit of truth to um, the conclusion that women actually have to be pursuing every virtue, not just chastity, though chastity for her is very important, because she understood basically all virtue and reason really as a participation in God's goodness and reason. And so, you know, she, she grounds really, I mean, she doesn't say anything about the term kind of natural law at all, but she's grounding her understanding of rights in a very much a natural law kind of approach that women are rational creatures, their ends, like men, are virtue and wisdom, and rights are necessary for them to pursue those ends. You mentioned in your work that Wollstonecraft's Rights of Woman, it's actually a book that's more about virtue and duties and responsibilities and how rights are born out of responsibility. Can you speak to that a little more? Yeah, that's right. So you know, as Americans, we tend to think of ourselves as kind of beings with rights. <laughs> And, and, you know, that comes sort of out of lock, basically the liberal tradition. And for Wollstonecraft, you're right. I mean, that's sort of my point a lot in the book is that she really is concerned about 
the happiness for men and women. And she sees, as the pre-moderns did, that it is virtue that leads one to happiness. And how is this done through, well, basically, you know, virtuously carrying out the duties of rational creatures. And so she delineates, again, not in a systematic way, but you can call this out of her work that, you know, these are the kind of duties that that rational creatures have, or will they have duties to self, to develop their rational faculties and master their appetites. And that's a really important point. She understood very well this kind of the kind of ordered soul that the pre-moderns understand that really, you know, to be fully human, we have to live according to our rational capacity, the highest capacity or the highest principle in us and not let desires dictate our behavior. You know, passions are good. They, you know, inspire us and all sorts of things like that, but we, but they need to be mastered so that we're free to do the right thing, to love others, to care for others. She ultimately saw benevolence toward others as the highest kind of human good. But she also saw, and was very explicit about duties of care to family members. So, and she was in her own life, uh, did a lot of caring for her own family members growing up with an alcoholic father. She kind of took over caring for her siblings and that kind of thing after her mother died. Um, so, but she also talks about a lot of care of one's spouse that she talks about living uh, her, we can I'm sure get into this, but her views of mm. marriage um, and loving the other on account of his virtues. And then too, for elderly parents and also duties to fellow creatures, to be useful kind of in one's work, but then you know to, to really respect others regardless of their social status. And then she talks about duties to God. And you know, we don't hear much about this in feminism today, but it's really, you know, to pursue truth and goodness. Uh, she even talks about trusting in his providential designs. So she really understood these, that this way of life of virtuously fulfilling one's duties is what enables to one to be happy and, um, well, become an adult and then go out and be able to go out in the world and um, for both men and women to do, to do good in the world. One of the beautiful takeaways from your book, uh, again, calling from Wollstonecraft, this sense of self-government and looking at it from a different way. We focus a lot on self-government, I'll say more in a collective or societal perspective. Uh, uh, self-government is, is, is a principle that's very important, particularly for Americans and, and also for us here in Canada and around the Western world. But I loved her emphasis on political self-government presupposing personal self-government. So you can only have a self-governing society that functions well when it's comprised of self-governing individuals. Uh, but the, the second thread I'd like to pursue with you is getting back to that theme of marriage and partnership between the sexes. I, I really loved it. And, and I was delightfully surprised by, by your insights on Wollstonecraft's insights around how her work, in many ways, it wasn't just about recognizing and setting a high bar for women, but it was about setting a high bar for men. Yeah, that's right. And this is really, I call this kind of the the unsung project of uh, the Vindication of the Rights of Women because, you know, she has, her thought has been recovered um, more recently, but we tend to hear a lot about, you know, political rights and rights for edu of education and then the professions and those kinds of things. But we don't hear at all. And what I really wanted to bring for the, to the forefront is the way she talks about the want of male chastity. And it's kind of astonishing how central this is to her argument. So she says things like, you know, I'll read a couple of them. So the little respect paid to chastity in the male world, I am persuaded is the grand source of many of the physical and moral evils that torment mankind, as well as the vices and follies that degrade 
and destroy women. So because she has this understanding of virtue as the need to kind of govern our desires, she sees that there's this kind of manipulation that's set up in this kind of really false and degrading relationship between men and women because men are kind of running after women kind of pulled by their lust to pursue women. And then women are kind of making themselves into these, well, you know, objects of lust. And both of these things are really degrading uh, to human beings and their real purpose in life, right? It's not as though she's just saying like, this isn't a good way of going about things. She then sets out this really beautiful understanding of marriage as really a collaborative union between two people who are well working toward virtue and built upon kind of a friendship of equals. Um, again, she talks about loving each other on account of their virtues. Um, what's fascinating is, and this is again entirely missed, is how she talks about, you know, she says marriage and and she wasn't thrilled at all about the marriage laws in her time. And we can mm -hmm. certainly, certainly talk about why that would be the case um, historically. Um, but she understands how important it is, how, how important marriage is as that which she says draws men from the brutal herd, right? So because of man's vulnerability, of course, we need to kind of couple in order to then care for children um, as they should be cared for. And so she actually says that kind of the corruption of marriage is, quote, more universally injurious to morality than all other vices of mankind collectively considered. And so she really sees marriage as so important and kind of, she talks about the benefits of this kind of rich domestic life of collaboration, of working together for what? Not, you know, to, uh, not for consumption, not for, you know, getting out the door to get to your work. No, for the great work of inculcating virtue in children. She says, you know, if you wish to make good citizens, you must first exercise the affections of a son and a brother. This is the only way to expand the heart for public affections as well as public virtues must grow out of private character. So she really has this understanding that everything else in society you know, economics, politics, civic life, all of that depends on that inculcation of virtue in the home, not only with mothers and fathers inculcating in their children, but also the way in which as any kind of, as I say, seasoned parents understand that this sort of spills out into our own kind of character and virtue development as we're, as we're doing that with our children. Among the many takeaways uh, that I walked away with after reading your book, I thought, gosh, there's got to be a way we can get Wollstonecraft into more marriage prep courses these days. But just so I'm clear, you talked a little bit about how some of her work was responsive to Rousseau, Locke, Hobbes. Is it fair to characterize Mary Wollstonecraft as the quote unquote godmother of the, the feminist or, or women's movement? Is, is that a fair label or, or, or title? It's, yeah, it's search. I, I would say she certainly is of the early American women's rights movement. And so her influence there is quite substantial. I'm relying on sort of uh, the work of historians of her and that time. So, you know, many of those women, especially kind of the intellectuals in the crowd, Lucretia Mott, Sarah Grimke, who wrote their own, um, you know, Lucretia Mott was uh, one of the, the co-authors of the Declaration of of sentiments and resolutions at Seneca Falls. Sarah Grimke wrote really brilliant exegetes actually um, of scripture, but also on, on kind of equality of women, on marriage. And these, these women had read Wollstonecraft and really relied on her. You can see kind of their influence, as I point out, um, her influence um, in their work. 
but she then I, you know, she's really abandoned. I think by the time we get to John Stuart Mill's subjection of women, he really kind of takes over in prevalence in, in kind of influence over women's rights advocates. And that's how I think we start getting into, you know, mid to late 20th century thoughts about rights. It's, they're very different ways of understanding it. And it may be in part because of the abandonment of thoughts about virtue, although sometimes he taught about, you know, talked about that too. It could have just been that, you know, subjection of women is a lot easier book to read. <laughs> John Stewart. I mean, it's a very systematic treaty. Yeah. Um, and so it could be that that's why they just, you know, went with that and said, I'm not sure. But yeah, she really, her work is kind of really abandoned for a long time. And there's, there's more to say about that. I mean, in terms yeah. of her biography, uh, she's not, a, she wasn't a saint. But yeah, her influence is, it's much more prevalent in the early women's rights advocates uh, in our country, in, a, in my country, I should say. I thought it would be interesting for our audience if we just did a, a bit of an aside. In, in reading your book, I couldn't help but think that there's a lot in Wollstonecraft's vision and philosophy that is compatible with the teachings of Christianity. And you mentioned here and there that she was influenced in some measure uh, by her faith. Uh, I'm going to presume that she was Anglican. Uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong there. Can you, can you speak to that a, a little bit more directly around how her views were influenced by Christianity and, and what you see as compatibility or, or convergence uh, between some some core Christian principles and teaching and, and her work. Yeah, I mean, I think any of your listeners would hear would hear already that there's so much conversion, right? Just even the kind of call to sexual integrity, which, mm -hmm. you know, who else is really even talking about that anymore other than other than Christians today? Um, obviously, there was more of that in her time, but certainly that's real important. Her seeing marriage as as really uh, this fundamental and the family is fundamental to human society. But I guess I would go back even further than that. Yes, I think her Anglican faith certainly shaped her, but she was also shaped by the natural theology of um, her teacher, Richard Price. And what I think is interesting about it is that they were, during the very beginning of the French Revolution, before you know, she was in, she was in Fran France to see the reign of terror and kind of fell away from supporting the French Revolution. But at the very beginning, you know, they were not pro-Catholic kind of people. Richard Price himself was pretty anti-Catholic. Wollstonecraft in some of her work doesn't have great things to say because she thinks that it's kind of, Catholicism is kind of blind obedience. However, all that said, the natural theology that guides her, and this is, I think, the really important part and why there's so much conversion today is because she's very much against the voluntarist strains of Christianity. And what I mean by that is those kind of Calvinist, uh, I don't know Luther enough to know whether they come as much from him, but I think so too, really hailing from William of Ockham, who was a Catholic, but well before the Protestant um, Reformation. And they basically, the, basically the argument was, is that God's will is kind of primary to God's reason. And so that kind of argument to her was nonsense. And so she she makes, you know, she says things like, I don't follow God's arbitrary will, um, because that's the way that kind of volunteerism heads, is that you start to think that God can do things up and against reason. He could change his laws. He could start to say that it was okay to murder, because if he willed it, then it could it would be so. And for the Catholics, which I guess she didn't know, but also in sort of this this kind of being up and against this voluntarism, there's an understanding of God and our reason is participating in God's reason. And so I think that's what ends up being why she has an account that is so familiar to us because Catholicism mm -hmm. is very much 
not a voluntarist religion, which is why we have such a good account of faith and reason, because there's no discrepancy there, because everything that is true is of God, right? And his will is always in line with his reason. There's no way of separating the two of those. So I think that in the end is why there's so much convergence. And so I think there's a heck of a lot, actually, despite her misunderstanding Catholicism at the time that she lived. Does she ever talk about the example of the Virgin Mary as as a paragon par excellence of, of discipleship? Or or how do you think she did? Did she ever say anything about some famous female Catholic saints like St. Catherine of Siena, who was a counselor to the Pope and to princes and mm-hmm. St. Perpetuo, one of the great early martyrs who was a leader in her community? Did, does she ever say anything about those women? And if she doesn't, how do you think she would have interpreted their their legacy and examples? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think she would have thought Catherine of Siena was pretty amazing. Part of what she did in Vindication of the Rights of Men, which is her response to Edmund Burke, is, you know, she's kind of taking some prelates to task for being too concerned with the money and resources that the rich aristocrats could give them. And so they were leading their flocks away from virtue. So they weren't good teachers of virtue because of their greed or even their lust. So she, I think, you know, was in her own way, (laughs) kind of trying to correct those who had gone astray. But she also, I think there's, she just had a real prejudice against Catholicism. You know, I think it's pretty clear that she had more of a Unitarian understanding of Christ. So she saw him as the premier kind of example. I don't know that she understood him as you know, as fully God or anything like that. So there's a lot of heresy in her thought, but it doesn't come out in her, in this work, especially. And it's not really consequential to what I'm trying to do in terms of setting up kind of, because I think her natural theology is so solid, apart from kind of all those things we know by faith alone, I would say. You're referred to, or you refer to yourself as a, a pro-life feminist and, and you're a practicing Christian. I'm sure many of our listeners are are curious to know and and curious to grapple a little bit more with the compatibility between feminism and being a devout practicing Christian. And an, an analogy I would offer, the local scouting troop at our family's parish, the scouting model is based on a British model of scouting, Lord Baden-Powell. Uh, there are some Christian principles at play. One could argue that there's a lot of secular principles at play too, but it's a very healthy, very vibrant model. Uh, and in our parish and in, in the Catholic faith, we've taken that model and we've baptized it. We've introduced an element of uh, sacramental practice. And you, you could say we've incorporated certain uh, practices uh, from a Catholic perspective into the scouting model. In the same type of way, can do you think there are solid, legitimate grounds to to take feminism, in particular as articulated by Mary Wollstonecraft, and baptize it? with the faith. Yeah, you know, I mean, this is what we do as Catholics, right? All the way back to Thomas Aquinas and before him, right? As we we take what's true in others' thought and we employ it to respond to kind of the crises or the misunderstandings at hand. And I think that's just a kind of a basic thread is because we understand all truth comes from God, that that's something we're able to do that I think some of our, you know, brothers and sisters and um, who are Protestants have a harder time with, because if someone's, you know, not a Christian, then they couldn't understand things, right? We don't, we don't see the world, I think, in that way. And so I do think, now I would say in today's feminism, I think there's very little that can, that could recommend it to a Catholic. But I do think in Mary Wollstonecraft's, because she is 
basically grounding her understanding of women's rights in this natural theology, I think it's very much coheres with the Catholic account that we then see in places like Vatican II, where there's an understanding you know, of anti-discrimination, uh, where there, there's an understanding of women's equal dignity with man. And that goes all the way back, obviously. I mean, it's core to core to the principles, even in Thomas Aquinas, though there's you know, some ways in which I would disagree with some of what he says about about women, because of our equal, you know, being created by God, that that is where we have our equality. And she would say the same thing, that we are rational creatures, and that's why men and women are equal. And I think building off that is a way to, and this is what I try to do in my work, is basically build a bridge to feminists to come back over, come over, (laughs) because that's what I needed for myself, you know, as you know, I called myself a radical or even socialist feminist in the 1990s, and I thought the Catholic Church was evil and all of the sorts of things that you hear. And there are writers, someone like Marion Glennon, built a bridge for me. And so that's what I try to do for others is certainly not say that all of feminism today is good at all. I want to critique feminism, but from the perspective of an alternative, kind of separating the wheat from the chaff, and then laying then laying out a a really robust understanding of what the true and authentic rights of women and rights of men, frankly, lays upon. And I think Wollstonecraft helps me do that. So you mentioned earlier, uh, you referred to the the Seneca Falls Convention in 1848, early conversations around securing the right uh, to vote for women. Can you speak a little bit to how how those folks were informed and, and shaped by Wollstonecraft's thought and, and maybe where there was the beginning of some some slight divergence. As I mentioned, I mean Seneca Falls in 1848, there's, you know, that's really the very beginning of the women's rights movement in the United States. And you really see when you read, it's a pretty short document, so, you know, go and read it, but you again, <clears throat> you see Wollstonecraft's influence in some of the ways that they articulate equality. So she it talks about the equality is based on the identity of the race, meaning the human race, and capabilities and responsibilities. There's a lot of talk about responsibilities. So we have these capabilities um, as rational creatures, but we are responsible for their exercise, um, that we have these duties to promote, as they say, every righteous cause. But what they understood was that it's not just men who ought to be promoting every righteous cause, but women too. And that's why they need, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of Christian congregations were really up in arms about uh, women who were abolitionists, who were speaking in public against slavery. And they were even leaning on very Christian arguments against slavery. And these men were basically saying, this is not women's place. They need to be quiet and submissive and in the home. And it's distorting who they are to be speaking out like this. And these women were saying, no, no, no. Like we have capabilities just like you do. And we have a responsibility to speak, be speaking out in this way. The declaration also, you know, leans really on natural law as the source of all just positive law. They quote Blackstone, William Blackstone on the matter. And we have to remember, I mean, it's like every good humans right, human rights cause does lean on natural law. I mean, this is what we see from the letter letter um, from Birmingham jail with, with um, you know, Martin Luther King. King. I mean, same way, Seneca Falls does the same thing. But I just want to note, uh, note one other one other um, portion I want to quote where they, they're responding to the kind of perennial double standard where, you know, men and women uh, are judged differently by their kind of sexual escapades. And women are, again, held to be, they're the ones who need to be chased. And we kind of forgive the, you know, when men, when men live according to their lust. And so they say, quote, the same amount of virtue, 
delicacy and refinement of behavior that is required of women in the social state should also be required of men. And the same transgression should be visited with equal severity on both men and women. Now that you know is a Puritan way of putting it, but I think you know instead of sort of meeting men at a very low standard, um, which is what we see in today's feminism, you know, like basically taking the worst possible men, vulgar, driven by lust, all of that, and then saying, oh, we'll just be like them. There's equality. They say, no, no, no. You know, men need to meet women at this high standard of care and responsibility. And they say that's, you know, in the family as well, you know, that we invite men into the family and into really taking fatherhood and sex seriously. And so that's what I'll say this last part about voluntary motherhood, because that's really a key portion of what they understood is that, um, and this is sort of shocking to some, but when you understand really the natural law account that they were giving, it, it makes a lot of sense that they understood basically that when pregnancy was not desired, that periodic abstinence was what would harmonize and kind of equalize the asymmetries in reproduction, in sex and reproduction, and basically allow men to have the kind of self-mastery and therefore uh, you know, what we know about NFP, basically, that um, it allows them to have self-mastery and really uh, collaborate with women and understand that pregnancy is a lot harder for women, right? Because uh, sex, and this is what I mean by asymmetry, like men and women engage in the same sexual act, but it is women who get pregnant. And so ought we not be kind of shaping sex norms around that reality and so require, um, ask men uh, to be absent during that time and then grow in self-mastery. And so they understood this to be a really good thing. They also were opposed, amazingly, to contraception. And they really believed that if you basically separate sex from childbearing, you're going to kind of free men to, you know, engage in infidelity, prostitution, and even, you know, marital rape, basically, you know, having sex with um, their wives, demanding sex, um, and kind of a presumption when their wives were not ready to become mothers. So, you know, that's kind of the way they thought about it. And the final part of it is they understood that as kind of an answer to what they saw as the rising crime of abortion. They understood um, very much abortion to be uh, the taking of a child. Uh, they called it child murder, antenatal murder. And, you know, there's one woman, the most outspoken advocate for constitutional equality, uh, Victoria Woodhill. She you know, was the first woman to run for president. And she talks about right begin while the child is a fetus. So, I mean, there's very much an understanding that like they didn't have legitimate authority to take the life of their own child. And so they should practice abstinence when they were not ready to become mothers. They couldn't just go and kill the child once it was in being in the womb. Yeah. Among the, the great services that I think your book is doing to public and social discourse is really looking at that record and, and drawing out very clearly that in the early intermediary stages of uh, feminism, the women's movement, I mean, it was abundantly clear. The chief proponents were, were dead set uh, in opposition to contraception and abortion. And it's really not until 60, 1960s and 70s where, where that shifts. Okay, so, so it, and, and we'll get to that in a moment. Um, so it sounds like, uh, I mean, if you're in the room at Seneca Falls, New York in 1848, you can just, you can just tell how the thought of, Wollstonecraft is informing the dialogue and, and, and permeating through the discussion. So let's let's move ahead then to a, a subsequent chapter in the women's movement and around the the time of the Industrial Revolution and the effects uh, are really being felt uh, late in the 19th century uh, and then around the turn of the, the 19th, 20th century. It, it seems like there's 
there's a bit of a shift in the the progression of the women's movement and some new leaders, some new voices enter the scene and some subtle some subtle points of divergence begin to emerge uh, and the tether with Wollstonecraft's vision begins to get a little bit attenuated. Yeah, that's a lovely, lovely way to put it. I mean, I think I would say that the seed begins um, with the thought of Elizabeth, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who I would say is really a good representative of a million way of seeing rights. Um, so this is, you know, we hail her as one of the great suffragists and she of course was, um, she was also herself in her own, you know, the way she articulates her anti-abortion perspective is very much coherent with her philosophy that she, you know, understood women to need to be self-sovereign. So Mill's understanding is basically that, you know, rights are not for fulfilling duties. They're basically for kind of self-creation. And so she very much understands that. And, and they're very much as individuals, you know. I am an individual, and so therefore I need to kind of create myself. I am sovereign as an individual over every part of my life. And that sort of takes priority. And so she really understands herself as an individual. And she says things like in this very famous uh, speech of hers in the solitude of self um, that she actually delivers before Congress, right before the turn of the century. Uh, she's talking about how our relations, relations that Wollstonecraft thought were so fundamental and the other women's rights advocates thought were so fundamental of daughter, son, husband, wife, sister, brother, mother, you know, mother, child, father, child, that those were kind of incidental and that our individuality was primary. And so she really, I think, pushes forward this kind of very individualistic move. Now, again, she was against abortion too, because she did not see a woman as having kind of sovereignty over the child in order to kill it, right? She just thought, you know, women should have sovereignty over her body. And so a man should not be able to, you know, have sex with her when when she wasn't ready to be a child. So there was still kind of this convergence of thought that then. But as you're right, as you get to industrialization, her thought, um, and she, you know, she dies around the turn of the century. So she's not as much of, uh, you know, she doesn't, it's really Alice Paul at that point who takes her views and kind of the more the mock, the uh, Lockean or Millian route. And in what Alice Paul articulates, she's, she is the, the writer of the Equal Rights Amendment. So after suffrage comes to be, she basically says, you know, we need to go ahead and, and really get sex out of the law. So she wants, she articulates a version of equality that is based in strict equality. And so during industrialization, when women are basically thrust into the very harsh industrial workplace, there are some women, labor advocates, basically, uh, the prominent one being Florence Kelly, who I argue is very Wollstonecraftian, understands the priority of the family in nurturing uh, kind of the seedbeds of virtue and necessary for a good republic. Alice Paul is arguing up and against Florence Kelly and saying, you know, we need to have women treated exactly like men in the workplace. And Florence Kelly is saying, no, we need protective legislation for women workers. And so we need maximum hours laws um, so that they can not be basically taken advantage of by you know, the rabid capitalists, and they can be with their children, which is, you know, the most important thing. And Florence Kelly really kind of saw like a, a legal fiction around the idea that you could have this kind of strict equality because of 
what I've said before, reproductive asymmetry. The men and women are just different when it comes to reproduction. And so because of that, there need to be these protective laws. She didn't want there always to be protective laws. She wanted really to be there, there to be a more just economic system for both men and women. But in the meantime, there there had to be protective laws against, again, the capitalists who were trying you know, to basically take everything from the employees they could uh, and work them in these really desperate, you know, difficult, horrible kind of industrial in early industrialization. Uh, so that's where the the sort of debate is in the industrial revolution. And it's fascinating because the exact same positions are taken later in like, you know, the 1990s. And there are women who, you know, want to secure maternity leave for uh, women workers. And then there are those who say, no, we don't want to treat men and women differently. And it's basically the same exact arguments. If I remember and interpret your book correctly, it's it seems like around the time of the Industrial Revolution, it, the mentality starts to creep in f- for the women's movement. And this this burgeoning, powerful, emerging market, it looks around and the need that it identifies and the ideal candidate to fit its needs is is the unencumbered male employee who can give as many hours, give as, as much sweat as possible to contribute value to the market. And, and it seems like that's when... That's when the thinking starts to creep in. Well, that's that's what the market needs. That's the ideal for the market. So if if women want to be on an equal footing, then then they got to present themselves the same uh, as as similar types of candidates who are who are unencumbered and who can give everything that the market needs, perhaps uh, very likely to to the detriment of of life and child rearing and and character building in the home. And, And it seems like that seed is planted around the time of the industrial revolution. And then again, we're not, we're not doing justice to all of this, but, but fast forwarding to the 1960s, like that idea just takes off on steroids. Can you speak a little bit to the monumental shifts that, that begin to take place in the 1960s and, and how those leads to a domino effect, m- much of which we're, we're witnessing now in terms of uh, the fruits? I think it's really helpful to think about how, because Ruth Bader Ginsburg talks so much about equal citizenship, I think it's actually helpful to think about it in that way. So the way that kind of the liberal account, the Lockean account, well, the Hobbesian account, but is this view of liberal citizens, it it emerges out of this idea of the state of nature and the anthropology, as we say, of Catholics is exactly as you say, it's these kind of unencumbered, individuals who, you know, join together to agree uh, to put aside their uh, warring against each other or stealing from each other to basically form a government that will protect their rights so that they don't have to be vigilantes, right? And so what this vision, though, is, is that it's it's this individual liberal citizen who then is out in the market or out, you know, participating in representative government. And it's kind of very much at that point parasitic upon or dependent upon women doing the caregiving in the home, right? So you have these public men and private women. So when women want to enter the public sphere because they want to you know, contribute um, in some way or because they're forced there, because they need to make ends meet, the, the, the kind of image you have is exactly as you say, that they need to be like this. They have to kind of leave the private sphere and become as unencumbered individuals in the public sphere. And what do they have to do? Well, leave their children and their caregiving behind because that's for the private sphere. And so they have to become like these, you know, they have to imitate this liberal citizen. 
which in itself is just a false way of thinking about human beings. And so I think that that's really the problem is it all starts off on the wrong foot. And so instead of saying, as you know, those who are up and against Elizabeth Cady Stanton in, in interpreting both men and women this way, you know, they would say, wait a second, but we're all, we're, none of us are unencumbered. You know, we're all very much um, interdependent and need each other. We need the family in order to exist. And so that's kind of where the argument takes place. And so what ends up happening is that you need something like the pill to handle women going off into the workplace and, you know, forget the idea of, you know, voluntary motherhood or abstinence. Now we really need the pill because we're not going to ask husband to, you know, men to discipline their appetites. How would we ever do that? You know, that's, that's kind of ridiculous. No men would ever do that. Yeah. And, and they weren't really, they weren't <laughs> in that way. And so there were women in desperate circumstances who were pregnant and poor. And so Margaret Sanger comes along and says, well, we need contraception to deal with all these women. And what does she do? She doesn't point, as Mary Wollstonecraft did, to this kind of want of male chastity. She points instead to problems with basically the pro every problem in the world of poverty, of war, of everything mm -hmm. can find its anchor in female fertility. And so that's what she wants to kind of put, you know, handle. And so what's so fascinating about this, I think, is that, you know, as many probably know, Margaret Sanger really in part wanted to push contraception in order to prevent abortion. But what happens when you, you know, you bring about the pill is that, and this was kind of unbeknownst, I think, to those who put forth the pill, because they thought, you know, if you have the pill, you can control reproduction, you won't have as much abortion. But what ends up happening is that the pill inspires this kind of widespread change in sexual behavior with all this new sexual risk taking, because people think, oh, great, the pill will help me to make sure I don't get pregnant. And so therefore, I don't have to you know, worry about marriage because I'm not gonna get pregnant anyway, so I can go outside of marriage. And so there's this major spike in non-marital births. And you can go and look at graphs and it's astonishing. You have like 5% of births outside of marriage in 1960, and then it like juts up to 40%. But so there's this major sexual risk taking. And so all those same kind of eugenicists, population control, people who are trying to push forward the pill and also trying to respond to, you know, this new kind of people having abortions and back alleys and things like that. They say, oh, gosh, well, what do we do now? That all these people, especially those, you know, black people, those poor people, they're they're having these pregnancies out of wedlock. They're having babies out of wedlock. So then they push for abortion. They're not making feminist arguments at all. These are population control and eugenic right. arguments at the beginning. And that's what gets us Roe v. Wade. So your Roe v. Wade then strikes down laws protective of unborn children that the early American rights movement was were very much in favor of. And so it's this like flip flop entirely of an understanding of what you know women's rights are. It would be incoherent philosophically on a Wilsoncraftian understanding of rights to say that a woman could have a right to kill her unborn child. Rather, she enjoyed rights in order to care for that child. And it also meant that the father had duties too. And all of that is shut aside for abortion. And the more abortion you have and the more liberalized it, ha it is, you have more and more out of wedlock pregnancy or out of wedlock sex. And you get the sexual revolution, basically, and you have men basically abandoning that call to fatherhood, that call to that, you know, Wollstonecraft and those 19th century uh, women's rights advocates had to really ask men to be collaborative uh, in the family, to meet women at this high standard of care. And you basically say, we're all just going to join men in their, you know, lustful pursuits. And that's kind of where we are today. With our remaining time, I do want to make sure we do justice to 
your treatment of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, she she enters the scene in, in the 1960s and, and rises to prominence in the 70s. In just a few minutes, can you summarize and capture the effects of, of her advocacy on these issues? I do think that she, in her early 1970s advocacy in front of the Supreme Court, that she does push forward by bringing basically to bear on the law, the anti-discrimination principle that is really Wollstonecraft's most basic principle that women share this common rational capacity with men and therefore kind of ought to enjoy civil and political rights. So she kind of elevates that principle to a legal and constitutional argument, I would say. What she's saying is basically that, that the law should not prohibit a woman from practicing law just because they're a woman. A law couldn't assume a man, a man would be better to kind of administer a state just because he's a man. So that's how she kind of understands. She like opens up the idea that men could be caregivers and women could be professionals. And she sort of treats this as something that, you know, the law should not push women to only be caregivers um, and men to be breadwinners, but both should take part in both parts of life. Yeah, and I, she actually, really, I actually didn't, re yeah. sorry to interrupt, I actually didn't realize that some of her hallmark cases, she was representing male plaintiffs. Yeah, that's right. And one of her favorite cases, that's right, is a man who lost his wife I believe in childbirth, and he wasn't able to to get her benefits that she had accrued from being a teacher because he wanted to stay home and care for the infant because he was a man, <laughs> and because you know he had lost his wife, she wasn't able he wasn't able to to secure those benefits, and so she argues you know that he ought to be able to, and she you know she ultimately wins that case, and she you know she she really wants to so invite men into caregiving like that's her kind of normative vision. She has this great quote. She says, "Human caring and concern for home for children." And the welfare of others ought not be regarded as dominantly women's work, but it should become the work of all. So I think she has this kind of high normative vision. The trouble is that once she's on the court, and really before in her scholarship, she is the stalwart defender of abortion. And again, she really sees, and I think it really is a real contradiction in her thought, that she really sees abortion as, as I said at the very beginning, as necessary for women's equality. And I think it really undermines this goal of promoting and encouraging kind of this male uh, being invited into caregiving for just the reasons I said that, you know, with the disconnection of both the pill and abortion, fathers tend not to see their responsibilities um, that they have in sex. So I think she she really does a disservice in promoting abortion to her own normative vision because she buys into this view of autonomy as being kind of the most necessary, kind of the, the modern goal is autonomy, is kind of determining our own life. And she fails to see that none of us are autonomous, and especially women who are pregnant, that a man can, you could say, walk away from a pregnancy and so in that way be autonomous. But why would we want a woman to basically mimic this child abandoning man? I mean, ultimately, you know, she obviously doesn't have a high vision of the dignity of the life, the unborn child in the womb. I mean, that's you know, the basis of her of her thought. But she didn't understand it to be worth nothing. I mean, she didn't think it was just sort of, as she says in one of her articles, contraception delayed. So she does have some sense of what's going on biologically. Um, but I think she didn't really understand how important and uh, her views would be toward kind of erecting this idea of equality that I think is so, so very bad for women, but then also pretty bad for men too. Well, I mean, obviously, the legacy of, of Justice Ginsburg, I mean, she's a she's a heavyweight in, in her own right. But but let's go full, full circle and, and return to, you know, one of the first themes of this conversation around part of your inspiration and impetus for, 
for the book and your experience responding to an alternative vision from another heavyweight, Marianne Glendon, and her, her, her very different approach to these issues. So perhaps let, let's speak a little bit to the work of Marianne Glendon and how we can take some of that and apply it to the contemporary challenges of, of today in the 21st century. The thing about Glendon's work is that I have culled, like I did from Wollstonecraft, I guess, I've culled from her work, her views about women and motherhood and fatherhood and rights. But she, in her own right, is a legal thinker who has influenced so many different areas of law. So she's internationally recognized as a comparatist scholar, one who compares kind of constitutions and laws from around the world. And you can imagine the kind of intellect that is capable of doing that sort of work. She's deeply regarded as an, um, a scholar of religious liberty, of international human rights. I mean, she's done incredible, incredible work in her career. But what I point out at the beginning of the chapter, and it's one of my favorite chapters in the book, just because of how much I really adore and how much she shaped me, is that she had this fundamental experience. She had worked on kind of civil rights issues as a, as a young attorney and was abandoned, actually, by her first child father. And so she entered kind of her career as a single mother. And that kind of experience of dependency and vulnerability that raising a child alone brings, just the experience also of the dependency and vulnerability of the child, and how important I think fathers are to children really shaped, shaped her thought going forward. There's no question about that. And so I think what she lends to our conversation is that she really understood that there are preconditions to liberty and equality. So whereas Ginsburg, I think, and our own thinking about liberty is that like liberty, like freedom now is for its own end. You know, we kind of get to choose what we want. You know, we, we choose kind of our ends and we pursue our desires with our freedom. And she really understood freedom for excellence, just like Wollstonecraft did. You know, freedom is there to do what we ought and to do the right thing because that will lend to human flourishing. And also with regard to equality, she really understood that you're not going to get equality by conceiving of people as these kind of, you know, unencumbered, liberal, autonomous selves. You're really going to get equality when you understand the interdependence we have with one another and how much we need each other in order to sort of push things forward. She understood the family as very much the seedbed of virtue, very much as Wollstonecraft did. But what she does is she kind of gives us this modern, um, we're able to see kind of a Wollstonecraftian vision engage modern ideas. So she talks a lot about divorce. She talks a lot about abortion. She has um, really famous books on those two issues. And so that's where she, it kind of brings the argument forward to sort of see how we can't build up a just society for men and women due to their asymmetries, due to the way in which you know, reproduction fundamentally affects women far more than men by conceiving of human beings as these autonomous individuals. So she brings us far along in that conversation. And I really lean on her to help me uh, to help me conclude, I guess, with some recommendations. I mean, I mean, it seems like first and foremost, if we're going to talk about Wollstonecraftian public policy solutions in the 21st century, some just to recap, some key organizing principles are valuing the work of the home more than the needs of the market political self-government presupposing personal self-government, self-mastery rather than self-ownership, and dependence over autonomy. And, and that, I think that's just a wonderful set of premises to depart from. You know, looking around, casting a glance at issues that we, we continue to grapple with today and, and trying to find Wollstonecraftian solutions. I mean, it seems very clear that when you're looking at quote-unquote women's issues like uh, maternity leave in the workplace, 
there's a lot from Wollstonecraft's philosophy that she has to contribute there. One one contemporary issue, and, and we're not going to be able to give enough enough time to this, but but I am curious from a, a Wollstonecraftian lens, how do you think we approach the issue around uh, transgender rights and and the movement there? <laughs> that is such a big question, <laughs> but I think you know she is very much a biological realist. I mean, yep. that's kind of the way I'm I'm countering trans ideology these days is that she you know she understood that men and women have these rational souls but they have very different bodies and those bodies as she say gives way to different duties obviously motherhood and fatherhood being the the most obvious but that we need to meet those duties with human virtues and so she very much understood that it is essential to really supporting women and men in their culturally essential work in the home of mothers and fathers to understand biology and get mm-hmm. that right and so I would just say that she has a realist position, you know, the idea that a man could have a man's natally or whatever we say, you know, man, male body and, and, and conceive of himself as a woman is really a misunderstanding entirely what it is to be a woman. And, you know, they basically end up taking on very stereotypically, you know, women garb, female garb and that kind of stuff. And I just think that is kind of the superficiality of understanding women that Wollstonecraft was really fighting against. She yeah. thought, no, to be a real mature woman and man is to to live toward virtue and excellence and wisdom. It's not to take part in these kind of, you know, what I what I how I dress and what I look like and that kind of superficial materialistic view of of being a woman or a man. So she wants to go much much deeper. And and, and I can't help but observe as well, you know, not just uh, not just applying Wollstonecraft to these quote unquote women's issues. I mean, it seems like there's a there's a very valuable contribution to make to much broader, much much more generic issues. I, I think, in particular, you know, we we talk a little bit about the post COVID environment, although it's still we're still very much in a COVID environment. And some terms that have come to the fore have been the the she session, the 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 recession that has had disproportionate effects on on women, the the she session, and hence the need for a a she covery rather than recovery, a, a she-covery. And one of the linkages I, th- I think that makes with Wollstonecraft's work, I mean, you talk a lot about how the the consequences of moving away from Wollstonecraft's moral vision for women is the feminization of poverty and the effects of contraception and abortion speak to that. It's, it's poor, marginalized women who are feeling the disproportionate effects. What can Wollstonecraft bring to bear on on those conversations? Yeah, I mean, I guess I would just return to that principle that, you know, you just you just also uh, enumerated uh, earlier, which is just how the family is so necessary and really more important than the market. And so whatever we do to recover, we always have to be taking um, the reason, you know, the reason why there's a she session, I guess, is because, you know, women are the ones who fundamentally, usually disproportionately care for children. And so we need to take that work really, really seriously. Not as like I fit it in around my market work, but that for both men and women who are fathers or mothers, that that work is the most important work I do. And so work needs to kind of be fit around the family. So I think really family policy is really the most important thing that government should be working on. Um, Making sure that when you are setting out family policy that you, whether it's tax breaks or family allowances and those, or daycare, those kinds of questions, that you shouldn't be discriminated against uh, those parents who want to care for their own children in their own homes. And you shouldn't, there shouldn't, and this was a Marion Glendon theme through and through, is that it shouldn't be harder economically for 
people, you know, for parents who are caring for children to get by in the world because of them doing that care than it is for kind of a single person or, uh, you know, a, a couple with no children. Like that is just not right. The work that the, the parents are doing is a work for all of us. And so they should be getting some help, whether it's tax breaks, whatever it is, flexibility in their work. Those are really important things to really have a cultural understanding of how important the work of the family is. And so I guess I would always just be saying that it's for both men and women, even though women disproportionately do do care in the home, but that fathers want to be there more and more generationally speaking. You see that, that fathers don't want to be slaves to the market either. You know, they want to have their family life, which is really the most enriching part of life for most people, um, really take priority and not be considered sort of as workers uh, first and foremost, but as human beings who are in these incredibly, you know, relationships that really constitute meaning in their life. Well, I can assure you this father on this side of the microphone would heartily agree with that. Erica, this has been a truly enriching conversation on a truly ennobling topic. You've done a great service to both men and women uh, with your recent book, uh, The Rights of Women Reclaiming a Lost Vision. On a personal note, I am genuinely looking forward to getting this into the hands of my daughter. She's 11 years old now. I think we'll wait a couple of years, make sure uh, she's at an age where she can truly appreciate it. I think this is going to be wonderful for her, for her friends. And and I'm very excited about the prospect of this book making its way into the hands of as many daughters, sons, mothers, fathers, citizens, co-workers as possible. Thanks again so much for being here with us today. Thank you, Patrick. It's been a joy. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts and help us to reach more listeners by leaving us a rating or referring us to a friend. If you'd like to partner with us in the delivery of this podcast, head on over to our website at crownandcrozier.com and click the heart button in the top right-hand corner to learn more about making a one-time or monthly donation. We're sincerely grateful for you listening in, and we look forward to providing you with future episodes on church, state, and faithful citizenship. Until then, God bless.